0: Currently, we are in, we are learning what it means to not just be a Christian in terms of what you believe, um, but what life is about and how you live that life. Um, One way you could um, call this series is um, learning to be God's kind of person. Another way you could call the series what we're trying to do is becoming who you are. Um, God has declared you righteous in Christ. But by his Holy Spirit and through the work of the gospel in you, he's also making you righteous. Um, Not that you you would just do righteous things, um, but that your life from now into eternity would look completely different. That you'd be free from sin and you'd be united with Christ. Um, And what we've covered so far, the last four uh, sermons basically, have been the foundation of how to change. So at least four foundational things you need to know in how to change. Um, So those things are, number one, Um, you need a new reason to live, uh, which is pretty straightforward. It's to glorify God. That is the reason a Christian lives. Everything in life is about God being glorified, that he would be deemed the most important thing in the universe, which he is. Um, The second thing, though, is that in order to do that, you need to be a new kind of person. Um, You need to die to your old self, which means um, your proclivities, your nature to want to sin, um, that needs to change so that you actually want to glorify God, because no one is born in this world wanting to glorify God. Um, But through Christ, you can become that new kind of person. Through uniting with Christ, uh, his death on the cross means that your old self died with him. If you believe in Christ for salvation, if you have faith But not just your uh, old self dies, but you also have a new life, just as Christ died and rose from the dead. So unity with Christ is how you become uh, a new person. Uh, The third thing was a topical message about the heart, because you need to understand how you work, how your heart works. Uh, Change is not something that happens outside of you first, it happens inside of you. And the word for the Bible um, that it uses is the heart. Um, which has to do with your thinking, your desires, and your choices. And all of those things change as a result um, of believing the gospel and having unity with Christ. But the fourth thing that we covered two weeks ago um, was that you also must depend on the Holy Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit that you not only die to your old way and continue to be empowered to say no to sin, but also that you can have relief um, that you are adopted into God's family. And those are really the four foundational things you need to start with in your mind when you're thinking about change um, until we get to basically the section of the series we're at now, where we're basically going to start covering the practical details about what change actually starts to look like. As far as I know at this point, it's going to be at least four sermons, and they're all going to be covering this topic. The next four sermons are going to be about repentance, repentance, what it is and what it looks like, and why it's important. So most of you have probably heard that word, and I bet a lot of you guys know what repentance is. The definition of repentance is turning. Turning away from one thing and turning towards another thing. In the Christian life, repentance is turning away uh, from a life of sin and turning towards a life with God and for God, and that's forever. And really what repentance is, I think a lot of people understand, is part of it is just when you accepted the gospel the first time. If you're a Christian, you have repented at least once. You understood what your sin was, you recognized you needed a savior, and as a result of that, you turned away from your sin, and you turned to Jesus, and you trusted that he did everything for you to be saved. Um, So if you're a Christian, you've already repented once. Once. But what we're gonna talk about over the next four weeks is that repentance isn't just something you do once. Repentance is a pattern in the Christian life. Repentance is something you do often. It's something that you don't stop doing um, because here until you are glorified one day with Christ, you will still struggle with sin. That's the reason we're even having a series like this. Now, just to be incredibly clear, Um, For Christians, repentance doesn't keep you saved. Uh, Repentance is a result of already being saved. Let me make that incredibly clear. Repentance is not something that keeps you saved. Repentance is something you do as a result of already being saved. Uh, Repentance is a kind of attitude. And really, it's the Holy Spirit that does that. Not only are you a new person through Christ, but the Holy Spirit drives you, pushes you, motivates you and compels you to understand sin in you and to choose righteousness instead thomas watson a very very famous puritan wrote an entire book on this called the doctrine of repentance and he says this repentance is never out of season it is as frequent use as an artist's tool or a soldier's weapon It's a good way to describe how repentance is like this tool that a Christian has in their tool belt that they pull out often in order to constantly readjust their life for the sake of knowing Christ. Repentance is something we do often. And that means that even though repentance is a command in the Bible, and it's always and frequently used as a command, repentance is also a gift. Repentance is a gift that believers are given not just so that they can live the Christian life, but that they can enjoy the Christian life. Because ultimately, as we'll learn over the next four weeks, sin is the ultimate thing in the middle of a Christian enjoying all of the benefits and blessings of a life with God. Now, to start that discussion, I wanna give you a biblical example of repentance from one of the most famous Christians in the whole Bible. And that person is King David. Now, King David is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, a very righteous man, and he wrote a lot of the Bible in terms of the Psalms. And a lot of the history of the Bible is either talking about David or referring to David. Um, but when he shows up on the scene, it's very clear from the get-go that he's not Christ. He's not the Messiah. He's not the guy um, that's going to restore the world. But he is a good example of him. Um, however, he's also a very good example of of a couple of other things um, about the Christian life, and you especially see that because of how badly he sinned in certain seasons. Um, Raise your hand if you know the most famous uh, sin that David committed. Margo, I saw your hand, what is it? Um, Yes, absolutely. So if you don't know the story, It's a very famous story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and I'm just going to kind of explain the details of it. But David is the king, and he's supposed to be at war. And instead of going to war, he stays behind, and as he's chilling on his rooftop of the palace, he notices a beautiful woman um, in the village somewhere out on a rooftop herself. And only in about two or three verses, David quickly invites her over to the palace, commits adultery with her and she becomes pregnant. And from that moment on, the next two chapters is David, a Christian, trying to cover his sin. He starts by inviting uh, Bathsheba, the woman's name. Um, David invites Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who's fighting the war for David, back home. And he basically says, Uriah, you've been working hard. Go home. Be close with your wife. Uh, Have a break. But Uriah, being a very righteous man, denies that request. He goes home and he basically sleeps on the porch. And the reason is because he feels guilty that he would be home from the war while all of his friends and compatriots are out fighting a war. So David tries again. His plan is clearly that if Uriah sleeps with his wife Bathsheba, then he will think that the baby that is actually his is Uriah's instead. So he does the same thing again, but this time he gives him a whole bunch of wine. But even Uriah, under the influence of alcohol, still will not do this and proves how righteous of a man he is. But David, becoming desperate to hide his sin, finally comes up with a solution. He calls Joab, who is the commander of his armies, to put Uriah in the front lines of the battle. And as a result of that, what he says is, send them out to fight Uh, the hardest enemies we have in the opposing Philistine army and then tell all of his buddies on the front line to bail on him and when he does he will be alone and isolated against the enemy and they'll kill him second degree murder and that's exactly what happens and as a result David marries Bathsheba and supposedly gets away with both adultery and second degree murder That seems to be until the very next chapter where some time has gone by and God's prophet Nathan comes and he tells David a story. He basically tells the story of David's sin. But instead of mentioning David, he mentions a random king in some other place or a rich man is actually not a king, a rich man. And instead of stealing a wife, he steals a sheep. And after telling the story, David having no idea that the story is actually about him and believing he's righteously angry, says whoever that man is he should die until Nathan very quickly pulls the rug from under David by telling him you are the man and as a result he reveals to David the depth of his own sin and how deeply sin has affected him before we get into why this story um, is relevant for us let me tell you two very quick reasons why this story is so important for you as a Christian uh, number one it proves that even righteous people can sin and sin in terrible ways. Even if you are a Christian, that doesn't mean you stop sinning. In fact, you can not only commit sin, but can commit very, very terrible sin. We might think it's infrequent. We might uh, want to very quickly go back uh, to the fact that we are saved by God alone and no works can take us away uh, from salvation. But sin always comes with it, guilt and serious consequences. The worse the crimes, the worse the guilt, and the worse the consequences, even as Christians. Here's the second reason it's so important because even righteous people can struggle to repent. It takes incredibly hard work to turn away from your sin. I quoted to you another famous Puritan a couple weeks ago who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that is absolutely true. It is very, very hard to fight sin. It is very possible, but it is also in many cases difficult. And even for David, he could hold on to his sin for somewhere between eight months to a year before God finally had to send an outside force to confront him and expose his sin. The beautiful thing is, David shows that he is a Christian because he then partakes in the first step of repentance, which is what everything today is going to be about. The first step of repentance is confession. Confession. Confession means taking personal responsibility for our sin by admitting our sin and guilt before God. Another way another pastor put it, his name is Stephen Lawson, he said, confession is agreeing with God about our sin. And we know that David did this because he wrote many psalms about it, but one psalm in particular that we're going to be in today. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We know that David wrote this psalm about this situation because the inscription on the psalm says this, to the choir master a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And the next 19 verses that we're going to read is David's attitude towards his own sin. This is the prayer and the confession he gave to God. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the living God. And the words that David is describing are the attitude of a Christian who understands their sin. What I want to cover today is five reasons why confession is so important. Why confession is so essential in your attitude. Five reasons why confession is the first step of repentance. Let's get into it. The first two verses explain the first reason, which is this. We confess because we must personally lean on the mercy of God. We must personally lean on the mercy of God. I think every Christian, on some level, knows that God is merciful. But every Christian needs to also do something else. They need to personally ask for God's mercy. They need to personally ask for forgiveness. It is not enough to know God is merciful. You must ask for God's mercy for your sins. If you notice, the whole psalm is basically summed up in the first two verses, and he explains what he's doing in verse 1 and 2. Notice what he emphasizes. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me from my sin." And David's going to continue to pray that way through the whole psalm, because David personally understands his own sin, his own accountability, and his own responsibility for sin. And you must do the same thing. It is not enough to know that God forgives. It must be that you know God forgives you, and therefore you should have one goal anytime time you understand that there is sin in your life, which is to confess to ask God to be merciful to you. Now, David goes on to mention many different words for his sin, but the first couple of words that he uses kind of explain how serious sin is, and we're going to get there. But the two words he at least uses in verse 1 and 2 are transgressions and iniquity. Transgression means rebellion. It means disobeying a clear order. And iniquity means twisted or crooked, or impure sins. So David is asking something very serious about his own sin. He understands this, that he must personally go to God in order to both clear his debt from his records and cleanse the guilt of his conscience. And in order to do that, he must confess personally. Personally. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Confession is essential. Confession means that admitting the only reason I'm right with God is because of his mercy. Confession means that I understand that God doesn't need to forgive me, he shouldn't forgive me, and there's nothing I can do to force him to forgive me. Just because forgiveness is his nature still means it's a gift, a free gift, not something I deserve. And the only reason I can be confident is not because of what I have done, but what God has done for me. Isaiah 55 says it beautifully in verse 7. Isaiah says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. With everything we cover today, remember that in David's mind, no matter how terrible his sin is, he does not forget that God has promised that he's merciful and he does forgive. A biblical counselor named Heath Lambert put it this way, Because God will never be faithless or unjust, we can have confidence that he will forgive us for our sins whenever we ask him, and this is an enormous encouragement for us to believe and share, especially when we feel that we have sinned so terribly that God would never forgive us. This is why understanding who God is is so important. Because the more holy he is, the more serious you understand your sin is. But when you also understand your mercy, you can also be confident to go to him to confess your sins. Every other reason that's past this is basically going to keep building and building on this idea. So we're going to go to the next point, which is this. The second reason we confess is because unconfessed sin is serious and dangerous. Unconfessed sin is serious and dangerous. And this is verses 3 to verse six. Before David talks about how destructive sin is, he confesses his honest awareness of his sin, and he freely admits his sin. In verse three, he says, I know my transgressions. He doesn't say, God, I'm a sinner. Please forgive my sin. He says, God, forgive me of this sin and this sin and this sin. He is very specific about what he's done, and we need to be specific about what we've done to God. He has analyzed himself, he has an awareness of himself, he has studied his heart, and he holds nothing back. God is not like a detective who has to run after culprits, put them in an interrogation room, and start forcing them to admit what they've done and bring evidence against them. A Christian brings a written confession of what they've done, walking into the police station, even if no one is tracking their crimes, and they bring it before them in detail. Christians are honest about their sin. The sad thing about David's case is that he wasn't obvious about his sin. He was not honest about it, and it took God's prophet to come and confront him for his sin to be exposed. However, Psalm 51 is a testimony that David says that never should have happened. It never should have got to the point where God had to force me to be honest about my sin. That process should have started with me. Again, Thomas Watson says this, that if a man goes to a doctor, he is precise about the wounds he has and points them out. If you want any hope about being forgiven by God, you must be specific about the things he's forgiving you on. And we're going to explain as we go through the song why that is so important. The reality is that God already sees your heart, but he is asking you to see your own heart. And to understand not just how sinful we are, but how merciful he is to us. And as he explains the great blessings that come from that. Being honest means I don't have excuses for my sins. It means I don't tell God my sins, but I have buts at the end of them. I have excuses. I have reasons why I did this. Even though I understand other people's sin and that other people have sinned against me, I don't make other people responsible for my sin. And if I'm honest, as any Christian I believe is honest, they understand the deepest, darkest, and most specific sins they can think of are within themselves. He expands on this in verse 3 by saying, My sin is ever before me. Sin is like a ghost in David's life. It follows him around and haunts him no matter where he goes. One commentator said this, Repentance is a living, sensitive consciousness of sin, which is always and presently giving me unrest and pain. Unconfessed sin hurts the Christians that do not confess their sin. In another place, he writes another psalm, David, in Psalm 32, and he says this in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And so he says in verse 5, the cure for this, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. Sin is like mold. It is more serious and dangerous as it grows in the dark. And the longer it is not dealt with, the more dangerous it becomes. Sin in the Christian is the same. And the cure, as David will explain, is to confess his sin. And that definitely involves confessing to people you have sinned. But most importantly, David points out, we confess, most importantly, to God. We do it to God. He says in verse 4, against you, God, and you only have I sinned, and I've done what's evil in your sight. Heath Lambert says the primary person we sin against is always God because it's his law that we are breaking. David sins against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, but the God who created them is the one who is most grieved and most offended. And it's the same with our sins too. And David's response over that is to be offended with himself and grieved with his own sin. He is shocked to see his own depravity. Stephen Lawson says, fully acknowledging his sin, David called his sin what it was. It wasn't, wicked, it wasn't weakness, but wickedness. It was not an accident, but an atrocity. And the reason isn't just because of how bad his sins were. All sin is cosmic treason, as Sproul used to call It, it is the God of the universe who is perfect in justice and blameless in sin. And Christians know something even more, which is that He loves us eternally no matter what. And that is the God we've rejected when we sin. That is the God we deny when we sin. David goes on to say in verse 4 that the reason he's talking about this is he doesn't want anyone to think that God endorses sin. God, he says, is justified and blameless. God had nothing to do with my sin, it's my responsibility. And it's my responsibility, not because of what I did, but because of who I am. In verse five, David explains sin is who my parents were, and they made me, so I'm a sinner too. I was born into this world that way, which means sin for me wasn't abnormal. I don't go to God and say, God, normally I'm awesome, but I was just around the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong place, and that's how this happened. No, sin is normal, not unique, Routine, typical, and normal. Confessing sin, as he's going to say, is not a problem of what we do. It's a problem of who we are. David's going to go on and explain that I'm not this person anymore, but God, I know I still struggle with sin, and when I do it, I recall who I was and what I was a slave to before I met you. The reason he does this is not just to beat himself up this isn't him wallowing in self-pity this is him understanding two things one who i am and second of all who god is because if i know who i am i know who god will change me to be he makes this transition in verse six where he explains this god delights in truth and he'll teach it to me He's going to teach me why my sin was so wrong. He's going to move me to confess as I should in order that I can be strengthened against future sins. And he's gonna do that in the deepest part of me that he explains as the secret heart, the deepest part of me. And that's actually the third reason why sin and confessing sin is so important. Number three, the reason we confess is because it's how God begins to change us. And this is verses seven to nine. In order to have a relationship with God and be forgiven with God by God, we also need to seek transformation by God. God, I wish I didn't do this, but you can make me better. And the first step that he does that is actually kind of the hardest step. And you start to get that because in verse 7, he says something super, super intense. He says, purge me with hyssop. We don't really get that statement very much, but basically that's a super intense word for a super intense process. Now, I haven't done this before, but I, I've been to a Korean spa before, and when I went with some friend, I was like, whoa, what a change. Um, I remember going and my friend said, hey, you know, there's this process they can do to make your skin really clean. I'm like, what's that? And they're like, so what they do is they uh, put you on a, like a table and then they get hot, sharp rocks and they scrape them across your back. I'm like, that sounds terrible. I'm not doing that. Apparently, tons of people do this. And there's all sorts of different things, specifically in uh, Korean culture, um, where they have really intense processes because they really care about cleanliness in the deepest parts of your skin. God cares about the same thing spiritually. Confession is kind of intense. Because you're looking at the deepest, darkest parts of you, and God is forcing you to come to terms with who you are so that he can make you who you ought to be. And he explains how intense that is in verse 8 when he says, Let the bones you have broken rejoice. God spiritually and metaphorically broke his bones. This was a painful process. This was a disciplining process. But at no point in that process does David regret it. He's happy it is happening. Because no matter how painful the discipline of God would be, the results are going to be greater. The results are going to be more beautiful. He says, I'm not just going to be washed. I'm not just going to be cleaned. I'm going to be whiter than snow. Confession is the means by which our sin can come out of us, into the open, and destroyed. Sometimes God is gracious, and that happens once. For many people, for many sins, that's a process. Sin gets whittled down little by little with many, many, many confessions. And not all of our sin will be destroyed until eternity. But the more it's destroyed, and the more we're cleaned, because the more we confess, the more beautiful spiritually we become. The more on fire we become the more beautiful a representation of the gospel we become. Never a perfect representation, but one that can be honest. That no matter how many people accuse me of my sin, I can freely admit it. I can freely admit my hypocrisy. I can freely admit I'm not a perfect example of the gospel. I'm not a perfect example of Christ. But I can still have complete confidence that I'm saved because I'm changing and I'm repentant. Because I've confessed my sin to God. Thomas Watson said, the harshest critic in a Christian's life is themself. Spurgeon used to say people could come up to him and accuse him of any sin, and he would probably say, you're right. That doesn't mean we just lay over and allow people to attack us, but it means we can be incredibly honest about sin because none of it scares God, and God will slowly deal with all of it as we're honest with it. This is how confession is such a gift, that even though God confronts us with our sin and the process might be painful, its end is peace, improvement, and the fourth point, it brings us close to God. The fourth reason confession is so important is because it renews our relationship with God. This is verses 10 to 12. David is going to explain that the reason Christians, Christians can feel so far away from God is because they keep sinning, is because they hold on to sin. In verse 10, David opens up this idea by saying, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't just wash me from my sin, keep remaking me, keep redoing me, keep de-sinning me And then make me a person who's faithfully righteous, who continues to walk in good works, who continues to grow in godliness. And he explains in verse 11, because I do not want to be cast away from your presence. God, I know you're close to me, but I do not always feel like I am close to you. God, I can trust that you're with me and you won't forsake me, but I so often feel forsaken. He ends up doubling down on this in a very interesting way in verse 11, where he says, please do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. And that seems very shocking, especially for people who know their New Testament, because it sounds like the opposite of what we learned two weeks ago. We explained that the spirit is the seal of our redemption and a Christian cannot lose the Holy Spirit. So what is David talking about when he says, don't take away your Holy Spirit? Well, David knows his history. It's a lot closer in his mind than ours, but he remembers what happened to the king that came before him. His name was Saul. Saul was given the kingdom. He was given a brand new authority. He was not a judge of Israel, like so many who came before him. He was the king of Israel. But Saul very quickly proved that even though God had given him the whole kingdom, he did not trust God or honor God or love God. And as a result, he was not only rejected as king of Israel, but he was replaced by David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, God says, the spirit of the Lord departed from him. What's that about? Well, if you want the really nerdy term, here's the really nerdy term. It's called theocratic indwelling. I just loved uh, Katie Lowe's face. She was like this. It basically means the kind of indwelling that's specific to kings in Israel. Now, everyone who has the Holy Spirit has a personal relationship with God, but kings had a positional relationship with God in which the Holy Spirit worked specifically with them to fulfill their duties and responsibilities. And therefore, in this sense, when Saul abandoned his responsibilities and he abandoned his duties... The Holy Spirit, which helped him to do that, left him. And it was a sign to those who were around that he was rejected as king. That is not the pattern with Christians following. That is not the way the Holy Spirit works as a result of New Testament teaching. However, it explains something very important about what David cares about most. He says, God, I want to be close to you, and I want to keep serving you. I know I deserve death, but please, God, let me please be king. It's not because I want power. It's not because I love this position. It's because I love to serve you. I love the opportunity to lead a nation to forsake sin and idols and to take up the cause of God. Please give me another chance. And that is an attitude that Christians should have. And if they sin, not only do we abandon our responsibilities, but we abandon all joy. And that's exactly what he says in verse 12 Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Sin destroys joy which is the exact opposite of everything the world is gonna tell you guys. Every single day you walk into junior high school or high school, people are going to tell you Christianity is slavery and their cultural conformity to the standards of the flesh, that is freedom. It is the exact opposite. And if people were honest with you about what's happening in the deepest parts of their heart, they would know that they're lying. Sin destroys joy. That's why we want to make it as clear as possible every time we meet at Roots. It is good to be a Christian. It is joyful to be a Christian. It is relieving to be forgiven and cleansed from sin, to live an actual life of freedom. And that's why, as one pastor said, David prays, confessionally because he wants to request to regain the joy that sin has stolen sin steals joy that's why psalm 16:11 says this god you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore the christian knows that even though confession and repentance can be a painful process Because of how deep and grimy we get into our own sin, ultimately we also know it's what leads to comfort and closeness with God. I saw a really funny illustration of another pastor named Tom Patton at the old church we were at. He was explaining that uh, he was cooking something and he started uh, another stove that was getting hotter until it got red hot. You guys know what it looks like when the stove gets like red hot? And his young son got on a stool and tried to put his hand on the stove. By the way, that's happened to me. It's terrible. Knowing how bad that was, Tom really quickly looked over and smacked his hand away to get it out of the way. His son, having no idea what he was just saved from, looks at his dad, starts crying, feeling totally betrayed, and bails out of the room. And it only took about three, se- uh, three seconds for him to realize he didn't know where he was going to go, so he ran right back in the kitchen and went to his dad for a hug <laughs> right away. But the amazing thing is that confession and repentance basically looks the exact same way. God saves us from sin, and it feels painful. But the pain of hell is way worse. And the pain of eternal judgment And even for Christians, the pain of knowing truth and rejecting it for sin breeds a guilt that goes deep into the fabric of your soul. And it sucks, is the clearest possible way we can say it. But the same God that disciplines us and helps us understand the pain that it happens by giving us momentary pain instead of eternal pain, That same God reveals that he is the God we want to run to. He is the God who brings all comfort. And that ultimately doesn't just move us to thank God, it actually moves us to serve God and live for God. And that's actually the final and fifth reason why confession is so important. Number five, we confess in order to worship and serve God rightly. To worship and serve God rightly. And that's 13 to 17. Confession leads to freedom and freedom leads to real Christian service and worship. Confession leads to freedom and freedom leads to service and worship. You see service in verse 13, where David explains after he's confessed his sins, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He is so moved by the mercy of God that he's not just gonna be quiet about it. He's gonna tell people about what God has done for him and what God can do for them. And if people have never heard that truth, he's gonna shout it twice as loud. You need to know, as one commentator said, that there is a close connection between a joyful faith and an infectious one, one that spreads to other people, and between experiencing restoration and leading others to that knowledge. But you also see that he doesn't just serve, but he worships in verse 14 and 15. And he has a good reason. Worship is praising and adoring God for the good reasons the Bible gives us. And the reason he has in verse 14 is God delivered me from blood guiltiness, which means I murdered someone and I deserve more than I could possibly bear and God has forgiven me it came with real consequences. What happened for David is that his son died. And he still says it still leads to something so much greater, so much more. And I am going to sing about that. So he explains in verse 15, "'Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise.'" Only God could grant us enough confidence to sing to him when we feel guilty on a Sunday morning. I don't know anybody who doesn't come into a Sunday morning and they're just 100% on. Just like the deepest part of them. I know many Christians, maybe most Christians I know, who do come in and they're excited for the Lord's Day, but they also have many, many Sundays where they have come in and they are weighed down by the patterns of sin in their life that feel so uncontrollable. But they don't leave Sunday that way because God grants a kind of confidence that we can trust the gospel even when we feel like we're too far off and we are too far gone and we can never change. God provides a kind of freedom where, even though I might not have enough strength to sing, God will provide enough strength for me to sing. And that's because He knows that He's never going to make up for His sin with what He does. He's never going to correct the sin that He's partaken in. But David knows it's not about his ad- it's not about his actions. It's about his attitude. That's why he says in verse 16, God, you won't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Now he's not rejecting the whole Levitical system of the Old Testament. He's simply saying this, God, if I have actions, but my heart attitude is nothing, I'm not gonna please you. I'm not gonna make you happy. But Father, if I do my best as a result of someone who loves you and trusts you for salvation, And I do feel the bitterness of sin. You will be pleased with that. Because, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You won't hate me if you know that I hate my sin. I don't hate it like you do. But I do hate it. And I'm learning to hate it more. I'm learning why I do the things I do. And I'm learning how you are freeing me from the sins that I stubbornly won't confess and I stubbornly hold on to. God, I know you are making me who I already am through Christ. One pastor said it this way, God is looking for the heart that knows how little it deserves and how much it owes. The nice thing about that is it's basically another way to say this, confession is simply believing the gospel. Confession is simply all of the sin that I'm forgiven of, I'm understanding it, and I'm giving it to God for forgiveness. And no matter what I do, it won't make it better, but I'm right with God because of what Christ has done. The best biblical explanation I can probably give you of this is the attitude of two different thieves who were crucified beside Christ on the cross. If you want to read the whole story, it's in Luke 23. One thief is mocking Jesus. And telling him that if he were really the savior of the world, he would have enough power to free all of them from that penalty. The other thief, completely different attitude. He says, dude, you and me, he probably didn't say dude. He said, you and me deserve everything we're getting. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he asks probably the most bold request as he has nails in his hand beside the savior of the universe who's never done something wrong. And he says, God, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, I'm being crucified deservedly. But can you put in a good word for God that I would be able to be with you? That is probably the boldest request in the entire Bible. And you would think the result would be, are you absolutely kidding me? And that's not God's response. Christ says, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. The thief had done nothing right. His whole life was sin. His whole life was leading up to this moment where he would finally die the death he deserved. But he trusted in Christ. And Christ said, I will see you later. I will see you in a moment. When both of us have died, and yet you will rise again because I am about to rise again. David finishes this psalm in verses 18 and 19 by basically saying a prayer request. He basically goes to God and says, God, the walls of your city are crumbling. The people need protection. Please restore and do what you promised you would do. And he says he would do it which is basically, without getting into too many contextual details, him just understanding, God, no matter what circumstances arise, I know you will keep your promises. You will restore your people inwardly and outwardly. And ultimately, you're going to restore the whole world. And the question is, when you go to God to restoration, when you go to God in prayer, is that ultimately what you want? Do you really believe that you're incomplete without God? Do you really believe God's going to make you a better person or he's going to make you a totally new person? Do you think that what's happening outside of you is a way bigger deal than what's happening inside of you? And that's really the point I want to end on by giving you a little example. Uh, One book I read this year is Robinson Crusoe, which is a story of a man who got shipwrecked on an island. It's not a true story, but it's based on a true story. And the man who wrote it is basically explaining how the beginning of this shipwreck for Robinson was just terrible. And it was terrible because he could barely survive, and a lot of the book is him just figuring out how to survive. Um, But it's also terrible because of loneliness. One of the only things he really has to do is to read the Bible, because he has a Bible he recovered from the boat that got shipwrecked. But the more he reads it, the more he becomes bitter, because he sees God is sovereign And he forced him onto this island. And he says, if God is good, why would he put me through this? God must hate me. But eventually he reads these words. Call on me and I will deliver you. He says, anyone who asked God for deliverance will receive it. And I rephrase this quote a little bit so it's a bit simpler to understand. But this is what Robinson writes in his journal after he starts thinking about that. He says this. I began to reinterpret these words, call on me and I will deliver you in a totally different sense than I did before. Previously, I'd only thought about being saved from the island, which was a prison to me in the worst sense of the word. And then I learned to take it in another sense. I looked back upon my life with horror and my sins appeared so dreadful that my soul wanted nothing of God but deliverance from the load of guilt. That destroyed all my comfort. As for my lonely life, it was nothing. It didn't matter in comparison to this. That whenever someone really sees reality properly, they will find that deliverance from sin is a much greater blessing than deliverance from affliction. What is the worst part of your life right now? think if anyone was honest, the worst part of their life is their own sin. And that's what God says is the worst part of our lives. But the first step towards all of that changing and experiencing the joy of salvation and restored relationship with God is confession. And that's why it is so essential as a first step of repentance. Let's pray. Father, as we pray, I just pray you would reveal to us the depth of our own sin. That we can't know all of our sins, Lord. It would be impossible. We would be on our knees all day and all night. But God, you have revealed so much of what we're like and so many sins we struggle with. And you do not just want us to cry all day long or to feel so beat up that we can do nothing. You just want us to meditate on how we've truly been saved and how we truly can change. And that there might be pain in the night, but you have promised joy in the morning. God, please make us confessional people. Make us people who desire to bring our sins before you honestly, with accountability, with responsibility for our sins, without excuses that we might be able to be relieved of them, relieved of the guilt of them. Father, though we might experience consequences for our sins, they will not be eternal. They will be temporary. They lead to great change and purpose in this life. And they lead to a greater expectation about the eternity that you are bringing for us. Father, I just pray that the gospel would be so clear tonight. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It is all through your son Christ alone. Our job is to believe and to experience the blessing of a life of obedience and joy. That we might receive the comfort and blessings of a life devoted for you and your kingdom purposes and that we might die to self, tape up our cross and follow you. No matter what the world thinks, that we would truly experience the joy of an eternal relationship with you that starts now. Thank you, Father, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.